Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Okay, we're continuing with The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. But um, since the course is being podcast, we're fortunate that other people around the world are being able to listen to what's going on. So actually the seminar is expanded in its own way. And very interesting, I got an email from a Vietnam veteran about our last class, which was about the Forever War, Part 1, by Joe Haldeman. And uh, so I thought I would read you parts of that email to give some feedback. I have listened to your classes with great interest. I occasionally read science fiction. Your course has given me a new insight on on the genre. And then he says, uh, I am a Vietnam veteran and ex-Marine. I served in Vietnam between, looks like 12, I think it's 1267 to December 67 to, to August 68, minus two months in the hospital. I think that's how I should interpret that. So, uh, and he goes on to say, I have not read Haldeman's Forever War, but it's now on my reading list. And then he goes on to say, there is another factor to consider in the sexuality described in the book. There is a love, a bond between people who have served in close proximity in combat. There is no other vocation that one might choose in which you may be called upon to risk or give your life for the person standing next to you. For lack of a better term, this is a bond of love. A natural progression from this experience would be sexual relations, not pairing, not forming the cliques, but a strengthening of the bond between individual members of the squad. If you want to see hugs and tears of overweight, gruff 50-year-olds, tag along with a Marine to a reunion. I'm not talking about homosexuality, but an emotional bond that does not weaken. So he's not talking about homosexuality, but he's talking about a, a very strong bond. That is one of the strengths of the Marine Corps. Uh, And he goes on to say, it is a cult with religious overtones based upon relationships that one will never see the like of again. With regard to drafting of the intelligentsia, Haldeman is picking up on one of the themes that bugged all servicemen in Vietnam, decision makers, in the rear with the beer and the gear and the do not dollies, I'm not sure what that means, uh, did not trust the decisions of the man up front. Let me read that again. With regard to drafting of the intelligentsia, Haldeman is picking up on one of the themes that bugged all servicemen in Vietnam. Decision makers in the rear with the beer, the gear and the do not dollies, did not trust the decisions of the men up front. You have to trust the men at the front to make the best decisions. You have to trust their grasp of the situation and their intelligence. Cannon fodder is just too expensive. The man at the front needs to be smart. Who has done more to lose the war in Iraq than a small group of ignorant troops in an Iraqi prison? Blame whoever you want, but it was ignorance that led to Abu Ghraib. The concept of the strategic corporal, smart people at the front, making quick, intelligent, and correct decisions is essential. And then he goes on to say that I object to the broad brush accusation that people who serve are murderers. Now, I don't think anyone made that claim. I think, um, but that was his interpretation. It was a very sensitive time. I think he was referring to the discussion we had earlier, which was... uh, saying that the people in, that served in Vietnam were not received back in the United States comparably with people who served in World War II. With people who served in World War II, they were given, you know, it was a ticker tape parade type of situation, great honor was bestowed on them, and so on. But because of the civil, disre- dis- uh, um, the, the civil uh, dissent that occurred, with the Vietnam War, with uh, basically the country turning inside out, the the huge amount of 
protests and everything, when the Vietnam veterans came back, they were received with no honor, except among themselves and others that were, you know, of comparable of comparable thinking. And it was a great difficulty. I'm not saying it was a correct thing that happened, but it was a great difficulty, great hardship for the Vietnam veterans when they came back and they found a whole host of their peers' youth looking at, looking at them in, in sometimes, sometimes in accusatory fashion. So this does not say that, it certainly does not say that they were murderers any more than anyone else that serves in a battle that was, they were, in which they were asked to serve uh, to defend the interests of their government, their country. But when they came back, there were people in the United States who looked at them and, and thought this was an unjust war and those who fought in it did not do a, a just thing. So it was, it was a difficult thing to serve in Vietnam because when you came back, you didn't get that positive reaffirmation that what you did, whatever you did, was for the betterment of the country. The country was divided. It was split. There was dissent everywhere. There were protests everywhere. So there was no place for honor and glory in coming back. And that produced a tremendous amount of hardship on the Vietnam vets that was totally undeserved. Undeserved hardship. They already risked their lives doing whatever they thought the country wanted them to do. And then, despite having risked their lives and gone through great physical hardship as well as emotional hardship, came back to a situation in which they were basically kicked under the rug by a government that wanted to move on, by a whole country that wanted to move on. It was sort of embarrassed by the entire incident. So it was a very difficult time for them. And some people may have thought very negatively of them, unlike the veterans that came back in the, from, the, from World War II. That's what I think he's referring to that what, in terms of the discussion we had earlier. It may be metaphorical, but murder is not an equal opportunity exercise, he continues. The victim doesn't have to have a vote. You rely on anecdotes in the media to say, you're, to say our soldiers kill innocents. Well, here is another anecdote. During my tour, the unit I served in didn't kill indiscriminately. No innocents died. I was wounded on three occasions. We fought to achieve the objectives given to us by our officers. Oh, oh, no, I think he's, re he's retracting that. He said, we fought to achieve the objectives given to us by our officers. Bullshit. Then he goes on and says, so I think he's meaning that he didn't, that's not what they fought for. Instead, it was, they, we fought to preserve the lives of the men around us. In the, in the long run, there is no, nothing more debilitating than a survivor's guilt. Now, that's something we want to get into with regard to Joe Haldeman, because remember, uh, Mary J. and uh, Mandela were also very deeply affected by what they did when they were in the war. I remember when they came back in, from this interstellar war, even Mary J. had a very difficult time. She couldn't kill anybody. She was able to kill people in the war because of the conditioning that they went through, and even the post-hypnotic suggestions and everything like that. Which actually relates a bit to what uh, this person is talking about. Okay, um, he goes on and says, I do want soldiers that are smarter than their leaders. Good soldiers draw from their men. And then he gives a uh, suggestion of going to Pritzker Military Library site on the web and check uh, someone called Paul Bucha, which I haven't done yet. Good leaders inspire, they don't threaten. I have known an officer. I have known officers who came up from the ranks and sergeants who have more human relations know-how than you will ever get from all the social science training you might ever have the opportunity to receive. Okay, in Hughes City, in the first days of the battle on the south side of the city, the battle was run by sergeants. Our company captain was shot in an ambush on the way into the city. The Marine Corps, in its divine wisdom, had pulled the lieutenants back to Da Nang for schooling in Da Nang and wouldn't let them go back to their units to fight. We stepped up to the challenge. Anyway, then he concludes by saying, the, the pleasure that your podcast has given me is in part measured by the fact that you have inspired me to fire off this note. So, you know, it, it's great when people that listen to the course uh, get involved in the course and it's 
while they can't be here, they're bringing their input in, and we can certainly discuss it. He sent me another email and uh, added a couple things. He says, to have my history, just as the Vietnam War deferments, high lottery numbers were a focal point of your higher education in graduate school, comments about my inappropriateness for academia and demeaning attitudes towards those who are too dumb to avoid the draft or volunteer turned me away from higher education. I have found a good life teaching English in Japan. I think what he's saying now is that in that comment, if I can interpret that correctly, and I may be interpreting it incorrectly, is that he seems to be referring to a, a class tension that was occurring. A tension between those who had deferments, like Dick Cheney, who were able to escape the war, or even George Bush, who was able to escape the war, I suppose, by getting a uh, political connection through his father to get a uh, National Guard non-combat position in Texas. Well, I, I think he's referring to the class difference between those who were able to get deferments and stay in school and do their stuff. Can you read it again, please? Pardon me? Can you read it again, please? I'm sorry, I'll say it a little louder. Can you read it again, please? The email again. Can you read it again? Please? Could I read the email again, please? Oh, sure. And uh, you mean this, this one sentence or the whole yeah. thing? Okay. To have my history just as the Vietnam War deferments, the high lottery numbers were a focal point of your education in graduate school comments about my inappropriateness for academia and demeaning attitudes towards those who are too dumb to avoid the draft or volunteer turned me away from higher education. It sounds not like he's talking about the class tension, but rather the intelligentsia scorn for the uneducated masses who didn't even have a chance for deferment. Because yesterday we heard, like last week even, we heard about how like people in higher education got deferments, and once they passed, they they deferred for that year. They were safe from the draft. While some non-higher education didn't have the opportunity. So it doesn't sound like he's talking about. One second, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Otto. Doesn't sound like he's talking about the like people with political connections rather than those people who were intelligent enough to see what was going on and gain a higher education but then looked down upon everybody else because they had managed to escape because they were in higher education mm-hmm. what, what does anyone else think? So, so do you get any f- sense that he's he's um when he says he was turned away from higher education, it sounds to, sounds to me, though, that he was uh, disliking the group of people who were, uh, you know, not understanding the Vietnam War experience or not understanding it. Is that what you're saying or are you saying something different? Uh, I'm saying that, but I'm just saying that I don't think he's got so much problem with the political, like, people who managed to, like, do... That part. I'm sure every like Vietnam vet has a problem with that. <coughs> but I think he's also saying that the attitude of the like academics, the intelligentsia, yeah, is what he's talking about in this email. All right, yeah. So, so he's focusing more on the attitudes of the intelligentsia. Well, I mean, I, I think what he's saying is that you know, people in colleges, people in universities, and people who were eligible for deferments were, you know. I mean, you know, they were sitting fat, dumb, and happy. They were deferred. You know, they yeah. didn't have to go to NAM. And so, and of course, as, as part of that, and it's not a good thing, but I mean, people in academia kind of looked down on people who couldn't get the deferments, kind of like, wow, you were too dumb to get into college, and so now you don't have a deferment, and you're going to NAM. And I mean, I think that that attitude would anger a lot of Vietnam vets. I mean, these people were getting drafted to go serve in Nam, and not only, you know, to add, you know, insult to injury, they're being sent to Nam, and on their way out, they're getting kicked in the butt by the intelligentsia, who's saying, well, you know, you're too dumb to get into college and get a deferment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think that is what he's saying, that there were a group of people who were saying things like that, or, or at least 
he was able, he perceived it as if they were saying that, even if they weren't. And there was sort of a class, a, a, a class difference in that way. You know, there's. Um, we don't want to read too much into his comments without him being here, but I'm awfully appreciative that he and others have been writing in. Uh, the the issue of how the Vietnam vets were able to struggle with these ideas is crucial to our understanding of the forever war which is based on the concept of Vietnam one of the things that I think we need to address that we that we saw last that we touched on on Thursday was that the the percentage of people who are in college make a difference the percentage of people who are in college and in the military or who have been in college and have been in the military make a difference I think one of the things that he's saying here if you listen to this when he makes the comment about Abu Ghraib cannon fodder is just too expensive the man at the front needs to be smart who has done more to lose the war in Iraq than a small group of ignorant troops in an Iraqi prison blame whoever you want but it was ignorance that led to Abu Ghraib I don't know if this person was drafted or if this person volunteered. It doesn't matter. The point is that during the Vietnam War we had a draft and there was a fundamental difference between the way of thinking of the people who served now and the people who served in Vietnam. That way of thinking was, was minimally the fact that many if not most of the people who served in Vietnam didn't choose to serve in Vietnam they were drafted to serve in Vietnam whereas everybody who's in Iraq now chose to join the military voluntary that fundamental difference is is there so when we have a situation of a draft we get a broader cross-section of people in the United States from all walks of life and that broader cross-section once you are in that situation you get people who definitely did not volunteer a large percentage of those people that are on the front lines did not volunteer and they had no intention or any desire to go fight people, shoot people, kill people, fight a war, things that you have to do when you're fighting a war. In a volunteer army all of that has changed. That section of the people who are in the army in the Marines, in whatever that they're, they're well actually the army is, is the location where the, the was where the, the volunteers were. That's where you that's where you get the I'm sorry, the, volu- the, uh, the army is the section where you get the draft, the draft people. Actually, that's only to my understanding. I think once you're drafted, you might... I have to take that back. I simply am pleading ignorance here. Once one is drafted, I don't know if that means one, would, one went directly to the army or you had a choice of which service to go into, but you had to go into the military. But that's a good question. I need to follow that through. The basic idea, however, is that the collection of people totally on the front lines is different in nature between an all-volunteer collection of people and a mixture of people where some people were there you know just because they were dragged in there but didn't want to be there and other people were volunteered so it's it's that combination what he is saying here and I think this is very useful is that mistakes made on the front line caused very serious problems in wartime situations and what I would I think sort of add to the discussion is that what you get with the Abu Ghraib situation is probably compounded in situations where you have a more homogeneous group of people in the military all volunteers as compared with a wider broad broad cross-section of people where there would be more questioning that was going on. I do remember the Vietnam War days just like they were yesterday and I do remember people including veterans were questioning all over the place what should be done what shouldn't be done and uh, maybe less of that is going on now with an all-volunteer that's a uh, it's, it's simply a question but it's a, it's a you know, and it's an important one Okay, let's go on now to look at some of the other issues that Holdeman raises. Why don't we turn to page 273 and down near the bottom. He's talking about what happened after the war was over. The war had finished and 
they were finally trying to discover what caused the war. How could the war have started in the first place? The 1,143 year-long war had begun on false pretenses and only continued because the two races were unable to communicate. Once they could talk, the first question was, why did you start this thing? The answer was, me? I sound like I started it. Page 273. The Torans hadn't known war for millennia, and toward the beginning of the 21st century, it looked as though mankind was ready to outgrow the institution as well. But the old soldiers were still around, and many of them were in positions of power. They virtually ran the United Nations Exploratory and Colonization Group that was taking advantage of the newly discovered Collapsar jump to explore interstellar space. Many of the early ships met with accidents and disappeared. The ex-military men were suspicious. They armed the colonizing vessels, and the first time they met a Sarn ship, a Sarn ship, they blasted it. They dusted off their medals, and the rest was going to be history. They couldn't blame it all on the. You couldn't blame it all on the military, though. The evidence they presented for the Tarans having been responsible for the earlier casualties was laughably thin. The few people who pointed this out were ignored. The fact was, Earth's economy needed a war, and this one was ideal. It gave a nice hole to throw buckets of money into, but would unify humanity rather than dividing it. The Torrens relearned war after a fashion. They never really got good at it, and would eventually have lost. And he goes on. What's comparable to what Joe Holdeman's talking about here, and what actually did happen in the Vietnam War? In Vietnam, we were fighting a war against, like, they, you went into Vietnam not knowing who you were going to kill. If you were killing the enemy, or you could be killing yourself, which is the same thing that's going on in Iraq right now. I see. So, okay, there was sort of indiscriminate killing. There was a lot of trouble about that. Go ahead, yeah. Well, I mean, on a different level, it's it wasn't our war. I mean, that was always the big argument was that, you know, it was... It was the it was the French's war, and it was it was nothing to do with the U.S. And we felt like getting involved because you know we had allies in there, and we just threw in all our troops, and it was this big deal. And here they're talking about how you know they're, they're, like the Torrens didn't want to fight. We, it was just a lack of communication, and you know the Torrens didn't want to have a war with the people of Earth, and. Uh, the Vietnamese probably didn't want to have a war with the United States. They didn't want the U.S. to come in and, you know, put in their troops and prolong the battle and all this stuff. And it's just it's kind of a parallel there. Well, actually, that's correct. There was a it was a it was a classic independence struggle, starting with French then Japanese then French and then American occupation of the nation. And in fact, the Viet Minh were not originally communists. They they. Uh, became communist because they had to get support from communist China in order to continue the fighting and then they became a full-fledged communist uh, you know military military thing but the 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 entire thing was an independence was an independence struggle and and so on uh, basically what were you saying perhaps you can say what you were saying again to I think you were onto something but I didn't I didn't quite give you enough chance to speak well, it's just like in Vietnam, the soldiers went in almost completely blind. They weren't sure who, like, if they walked up on a Vietnamese person, whether they were a civilian or an actual oh, soldier, I see. they would just go in and attack you, villages, even though they may have been completely civilian. Not knowing who the enemy actually, if if someone was really friend or foe. Well, the same thing was in here. It's the same thing with the like, teddy bears in the beginning of the novel. They yeah. shot them because they didn't know. They didn't know. In fact, I mentioned that with regard to my own father in World War II, who, when he was fighting in Guam, he was a lieutenant, and either he or some of his men had to shoot uh, people who were probably women carrying a child, not knowing that because they were approaching them, and on some instances they blew up, meaning that the women and the child were booby-trapped. Suicide bombing was not invented in the Middle East. It's been around for a long while. It was happening in World War II, and it happened in um, uh, Vietnam, and it's been around for a very, very long time. So, you know, and and the soldier literally has to decide, am I going to let this person approach me, even though you're yelling? And my father was very clear. He said, you, you yelled at them, stay back, stay back. But if they kept on walking, you're literally saying, 
am I going to be blown up in the next few seconds? And, and some of the women carrying children will, were literally booby-trapped and they were forced. Actually, some of the historical records, I believe, are out now that they were actually forced uh, by people in the trenches uh, under, under significant threats to go forward and to do things like that. And, you, and so the real question is, are you shooting someone who's friend or foe? In fact, it may have been in situations like that that sometimes women and children were, would be going up to you hoping for help and then things like that would happen. War is a just a goddamn awful thing, <laughs> no matter how you look at it. But there's something else here that I think you're not getting that I think would be useful that may be more of a historical nature. The Vietnam War was fought, was fought on a pretext, not just a pretext that you're talking about, Jason, which was very valid, which was it was an independence struggle. It was not a it was not a communist insurgency. It was cl- it was a classic independent struggle, a, a nation trying to just un- un- using whatever means it could, whatever ideology was convenient for it, just to get its nation back. We, it was also started under false pretexts. There were two incidences in the Gulf of Tonkin, and one was where a they were, they were separated just by a day or so. One was where a small military craft in Vietnam apparently did take some pot shots at a destroyer, not from very far away, no damage. Um, from somewhat far away, no damage was done, and the destroyer you know, shot back. And then the next day, it, it was claimed, or, or soon after, it was claimed that a second you know, significant attack, this time a significant attack, was made by a Vietnamese uh, naval vessel on on the U.S. destroyer, and then on U.S. Mil- on U.S. naval forces, and then a. It, it turned out later that that was a total fabrication, that no such attack ever occurred. There were some fishing boats out there, and someone might have seen someone cast off or something like that, but there was no attack. But the information came back to Washington that the Vietnamese had made an unprovoked attack on U.S. naval vessels twice. And in out and and the president made an appeal that we must be able to defend ourselves against unprovoked military attacks. And the Gulf of Tonkin, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution came through, which was the is was what President Johnson used to escalate the war in Vietnam. And it basically said you can use whatever force is necessary in order to protect American the lives of American servicemen and the. The naval, the naval forces, and whatever. And it, it, the question has always plagued. We now know that the information of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was an absolute fabrication. That's a historical, undisputed fact at this point. The question that we always have left is: Did President Johnson know that it was an absolute, total fabrication? Meaning, did he lie? That's exactly parallel to the question people have been asking with regard to President Bush. The reason for invading Iraq was that there was weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, and potentially nuclear, in Iraq, and that they would be used against the United States, just as Al-Qaeda used, you know, weapons against the United States to bring down the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and so on. And the question has been, did, uh, did President Bush know that the information he was given from the intelligence community was fabricated, was, was not correct? Now, the argument has always been to the very end that it wasn't fabricated, it was just mistaken. But there's also very, you know, it, it, it's very strongly argued in many circles that the information was fabricated because there was a prior intention to want to invade Iraq. Some of the news stories that's coming, that are coming out to this day seem to indicate that the president was determined to invade Iraq under any circumstances. It was a, perhaps a mistake that his father had made by not finishing off the first Desert Storm War, and he was going to do it no matter what, and the 911 experience was a good excuse to finally get people into Iraq, compounded by the fact that Iraq had oil. We were facing oil shortages and needing to do that. So, the point is that there was a, a question. Now, this does not say that President Bush lied, but it raises the question, did he lie? Well, I mean, people 
by the same token, the UN weapons inspectors went in there and whenever they went in there, 91? And could, they couldn't find anything. Well, in their report, they list all kinds of precursors to weapons of mass destruction. They listed precursors to biological weapons. They listed all kinds of stuff that no one found when they went back in there. And, I mean, yeah, they might not well, have Well, you're talking about things that were brought out during the first desert storm war, right afterwards. Not, not right before the war. Right before no, the war. No, I'm talking war. about the second desert storm. That, that when the UN inspectors went in after the first desert storm to inspect the weapons in Iraq... They found things that were not found when the U.S. forces invaded during the Second Gulf War. But they found nothing to indicate that it was possible that real things, real things could be there, such as military, like, such as nuclear weapons, and so on. It was it was very clear they were trying to build a case. The United States and Britain were trying to build a case that such evidences were did exist. And if you remember Colin Powell's presentation to the uh, to the United Nations was showing that these special trains, these, these special you know, vehicles, moving vehicles, were in fact uh, vehicles that had military you know, labs in them for all types of weapons of mass destruction. And it turned out that that information was totally inaccurate. So when you say there were definite precursors, most of that's been discredited, and, and really, no one really says that there was stuff there. Well, I mean, when the U.S. troops went in there, they found all over all kinds of Saddam Hussein's buildings, vast quantities sprayed all over them of farm-grade chemicals. And well, I, my dad used to work in a gold kist, which does farm-grade chemicals for farmers. And he said one of the worst things he's ever seen was when a gentleman who worked there was working with a forklift and a barrel of, and he didn't tell me what chemical, fell over on top of the forklift and cracked wide open. And the guy made it about 50 steps across the floor before he just melted. Mm -hmm. And uh, said it was the worst thing he's ever seen. And, I mean, and the argument that I had heard about, you know, the weapons of mass destruction was that, you know, you could cover anything with farm-grade chemicals. I mean, you could spray down the walls of a building and, you know, they could have had anything in there from A to Z and you would never know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was always the argument that I heard anyway about why. But that's certainly different than a smoking gun. Yeah. That's certainly different from a situation where someone said that we've, we've nailed it to the wall, there were definitely weapons of mass destruction, and thus we really needed to invade. That's really talking about very significant degrees of difference. The, the, the point I want to raise here is that Haldeman is saying that a war was started under false pretexts. Now, there's a classic thing that you should understand about politics and military issues with regard to politics. And you can also bring it to your eyeglasses. I wear eyeglasses and so on. Now, when I was very young, my mother took, this in, took us into an optometrist. And the optometrist said, whoa, you've got problems. All of your kids need eyeglasses, like now. We all got eyeglasses. My mother couldn't quite understand, but she said, well, if the doctor said we need eyeglasses, we need eyeglasses. So we all walked out with eyeglasses. Well, she waited a year with all of us dutifully, you know, wearing eyeglasses. And then she said, well, let me take him to another doctor. This time I'll take him to an ophthalmologist. Now, an ophthalmologist looked at us and gave us the same exam and said, what are you doing with glasses? And she said, well, we went to an optometrist, and he said, we all needed glasses. And he said, you need them like a hole in the head. Just throw them in the trash. There's nothing wrong. Your old kids are 20-20. Now, what was the difference between the ophthalmologist and the optometrist? The optometrist wants to make a sale. That's right. The make optometrist the combined the, the, eye, the eye exam with selling glasses. So the optometrist saw somebody come in and actually could sell them glasses at the same time. There was a conflict of interest. Okay. Now, this does not say all optometrists sell glasses the, you know, in an inappropriate fashion. But what are you trusting at this point? If you get, when you go into an optometrist, you're trusting that the person will be honest because there is an economic incentive for the optometrist to also sell glasses. The ophthalmologist, of course, couldn't do that. You had to actually take the prescription and go to an optician to get your glasses. Now, let's relate this to the military. Well, it works exactly the same way, I mean, with, with presidents at least. I know, I mean, they always say that presidents during a war period are always granted much greater power, um, and they always end up, whether they were 
effectual or ineffectual, they're always remembered. Mm-hmm. Everyone remembers the Johnson micromanaged NOM. Mm-hmm. Everyone remembers that. Everyone remembers that George Bush Sr. had the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. I mean, just everyone remembers Truman in World War Two. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody remembers the president during a conflict. Yes. And I mean, I, don't, I just I remember hearing a story somewhere about how that was one of the considerations that Bill Clinton took into account when he was thinking about Kosovo. Yes. And, I mean, obviously, George Bush Jr. most definitely took that into account when he was thinking about going into but Iraq. But how does that relate to the... Well, in, this, uh, in the same thing, these people are... Go- the uh, the generals who were brushing off their medals when they first saw the Torin menace, it was, it was like, we would be stronger leaders. We in the UNEF, we're an exploratory force. We don't have much real power. But then when we see a Torin, if we blast it... Oh, I see. What and we have saying. a conflict. Well, then all of a sudden, man, we just got all the power in the world because we're we're the forefront of okay, a battle, of a conflict, a war. I see what you're saying. So there's an incentive for presidents to have big conflicts because then they're the heroes of the day. Okay, that's. I see what you're saying. That's good. You know what? I, I was actually headed towards something else, but that's that's very closely related. The issue of the military with the Gulf of Tonkin. Who? gave the intelligence that we were attacked, we need defense, to the president. It was the military. So it filters up through the soldiers at the front lines who actually saw either a Vietnamese military craft or a fishing boat, whatever, till it finally gets up to the Pentagon. And it turned out to be a fishing boat, uh, you know, was finally reported as a, a, a military craft shooting at the, uh, at the destroyer. U.S. destroyer. And the question is, what does the military do? What is its only job? To fight battles. Well, if your source of information is only the military, the conflict of interest, just like with the optometrist is, the conflict of interest is, you know, you might as well report information that supports the use of military force for retaliation because there's nothing else the military does. That's its only job. So, if you rely on the military for intelligence strictly coming from the battlefield, you're likely going to be in a situation where the military will give you information that's biased in the direction of combat being an effective, an effective remedy for this situation. Because that's what they do. It's like the optometrist situation. And so, what Haldeman, I think, is talking about there is that conflict that conflict of interest that you get when you rely on someone who has a vested interest in a certain type of approach to giving you information (coughs) about what to do. It's very similar as if you get information from oil companies about what the U.S. energy policy should be, which is exactly what Vice President Cheney did with his energy uh, with his energy proposals that he proposed early on in the Bush administration. He met with people in the coal and uh, nuclear and uh, mostly oil field and came up with a policy. And the policies were very coal, nuclear, and, or- and, well, and oil-oriented. The funny thing is that that applies in a political sense in other arenas as well. I mean, the way the government determines most of its policy is through lobbyists and lobbies. Exactly. And obviously the people who are the wealthiest (coughs) have got the biggest lobbies, have got the most power. So you'll have information coming out in that line as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let's let's look at page 160. This is right before uh, chapter... This is the end of chapter 10, right before chapter 11. Okay, and this is in the second section, I believe. The chapters start renumbering. That's why it's a, it's, a, it's a different, it's a difficult situation. It's in the middle of the book, page 160, okay? This is the end of chapter 10 in this section. Mary J. didn't want to go back inside because it was getting light enough to see the men she had killed so completely. It went black. Oh, I, I mean, I went back in to get some cigarettes and forced myself to look. It was messy enough, but just didn't disturb me that much. That bothered me, to be confronted with a pile of human hamburger and mainly notice the flies and ants and smell. Death is so much neater in space. Now, if you remember, they're back on Earth, and Earth has changed dramatically 
security is deteriorated everywhere. You have to hire bodyguards to go anywhere. And they are on the commune where Mary J's parents live. And they just have been attacked by what they call jumpers, which are people normally from the city that come in and simply raid the communes of food, television, refrigerators, cash, whatever. Okay? And so, and, and Mary J just lost her mother and father. We buried her mother behind the house, and when the truck came back with April's small body wrapped in a shroud, which is her mother, we buried her beside him. The commune sanitation truck came by a little later, and gas mask men took care of the jumpers' bodies. And if you remember, Mary J had killed the jumpers with the gun that Mandela had brought with him. They had the flagettes in it. Anyway, we sat in the baking sun, and finally Mary J wept for a long time, silently. What is actually Haldeman talking about that might relate to a movie starring Mel Gibson? <laughs> a movie starring Mel Gibson? There are so many. Um, the I wasn't thinking of that. Braveheart? Interesting, but I wasn't thinking of that either. A science fiction movie. Um, oh, oh, oh. There were three of them. Mad Max. Have you ever seen any of the Mad oh, Max Mad movies? Oh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Oh, any original movies? Okay. Well, <laughs> one of the interesting things about that movie is you had uh, an, an ecological destruction of the Earth combined with, uh, due to a vast over-exploitation of the resources, combined with a militarization of things and then a breakdown of all, of all, of all order. And the Mad Max scenario is very much what the Earth seemed to have been going through. That, that in, in, in Haldeman's knowledge, in Haldeman's, in Haldeman's book. So I just wanted to raise that interesting comparison that what you get, since many of you don't remember the Mad Max movie, that we won't pursue that, but one of the things that you do get is um, that aspect. Let's go to the... Let's go to some of the ending aspects before we go back further and earlier, which is when the novel finally ended and the war was over, how did the war end? They cloned humanity, and then through some mythical means of communication, the clones spoke on a level that only clones can understand and realized that they were fighting each other for no apparent reason after 1143 years. This is very crucial. Humanity ended up as a race of clones. And there actually were still breeders with individuality, but they went off to distant planets. Yeah, they went off to various places. But the large bulk of humanity became clones. Now this is really important. What does this say that Joe Haldeman is saying about humanity? Why would clones have a peaceful, well-organized existence that could get along with the galaxy. But regular humans would have difficulty getting clones along, would shoot no first, kill the Torrens. Go ahead. Clones have no individuality, they're just the same. Like wait, wait a second, Adol first, yeah. And the clones here are a hive mind, there's just one mind controlling them. So, like, they lack the individuality, like each human, like in this game we've come across as a book, each human has their own thoughts, their own things. That's how the humans differ from the like hive mind of the bugs. That each one of them was capable of making their own decisions. And there were people there who would, of course, like be like quick to anger, so they'd go like more easily go to war. But if there's just one mind, then chances are that like it may war for a bit, but eventually it'll like every human will eventually learn that okay, war isn't good. And because this mind, like, and maybe it didn't figure out this whole thing right away, but when it did, it was able to stop everything at once. It was able to, like, every single fighting unit would have certainly, would have certainly, like, stopped fighting. And it was able to communicate, which obviously helped. Yeah. So it was that having of one mind, actually one homogeneous group, that made war... Be, had made war made war difficult to pursue, uh, having of one thought. Uh, you were going to say something else. I was just kind of the same thing. You were saying like an Ender's game. They none of them can think for themselves. One person thinks for an entire army. 
Mm-hmm. And that's how clones work. They just copycat what someone else tells them to do. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. There's a couple things that I might bring out that's historically of interest. In the Philippines, when President Marcos, col- uh, his regime collapsed, and Corazon Aquino took over, there was a election that was fraudulent that President Marcos said he won that didn't, no one believed it. And he ordered the troops to fire on the demonstrators that were saying, no, we have to, you know, <laughs> this is... That we're, that we're not going to believe this election, this election, this was a stolen election. And then you had Philippine troops facing, essentially, their own brothers and sisters, right on the field. They were all of the same group, same ethnic group, same language, same everything. And the Philippine troops simply refused to fire. We are not going to shoot our brothers and sisters to defend you know, President Marcos. And then uh, there was a general called General Ramos who then said, I'm not going to order my troops to do this either. They're not going to shoot their own. Now, interestingly, actually, in fact, I have a a brother-in-law who's a a general in, uh, in, in Kenya. And he has commented the same thing, that one of the things that you always wonder about is if the political authorities should bring out the military to squash a rebellion um, if it's a popular rebellion will the troops actually fire on their own relatives it's it's just a it's a question when you have when you have one group now in a situation in Africa it's, diff- it's somewhat different because there's many ethnic groups and the ethnic groups often fight each other and it becomes more complicated in the Philippines you didn't have that ethnic that ethnic uh, diversity but what we have when we have clones is we have the lack of diversity, the complete lack of diversity. And so if you're cloning people, you, you eliminate all, of that, all that diversity. You're, you're actually shooting a carbon copy of yourself. And would you, for what reason would you shoot yourself? Very much like the soldiers in the Philippines refused to shoot one of you know, their own relatives. Well, what Joe Holman seems to be saying is that and this, I, I raise this not as a statement of fact, but as a point of questioning. But he seems to be saying that one of the causes of the problems that we have, our fighting nature, is our own diversity, our own differentness. When we can break ourselves apart as groups. That's ignorance more than... Go ahead. I mean, the reason we have this whole, you know, between ethnicities and races is because we're ignorant of other cultures or other religions. Yes. That's a problem. Well, actually, Holtzman's addressing that. It was the lack of communication. Exactly. It was our differentness. Remember, what allowed us to be so easy in combating the Taurans? The humans were so different from a race of clones. And what made it possible for the humans to stop fighting the clones when the humans became clones? And then why... They have a commonality. They could understand one another. Why fight? What's the point in living if you're clones, though? I mean, what's the well, point in humanity? I mean, what's the point in society? What's the point in the planet? I mean, you have all these people who are just carving copies of each other. I mean, why bother? That's a good point. The, 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 but I think one of the... That's a good point. But one of, the, one of the things that I think Haldeman's raising, and I don't think we have a definitive answer for this, but one of the points he seems to be raising is, is this diversity that we have an underlying cause of our co- of our of our combative nature. Oh, underlying cause of our combative nature or not is an underlying cause of <laughs> of everything. I mean, we're not human without without I mean, the fact that I'm different from you and you're different from, you know, everyone else in this room and we're all different is what makes us human. I mean, yes, we're sentient. Yes, we're self-aware. Yes, we're all these different things, but I mean, fundamentally, we're different. And, you know, that's what makes humanity work. And yeah. if we were all the same, yeah. why would we bother? I think that's why he's saying that. He's like, if humans continue to have wars <coughs> like the Vietnam War, and he's like, he's saying something extreme that does it have to come where we have to have like a race of clones to realize that this is wrong? He's not saying that that's possible. You're right. I mean, there is no way. So I think he's just raising the question. He's making us look into ourselves, say, would it have to come to this, that to end a war that everyone knows is useless and has no reason to be in the first place? Would have to have clones who think exactly the same. So the difference is clones won't think exactly the same. Like well, I mean, I mean to have clones at all, just to, because I mean the whole point is we're talking about is these different 
that these different ethnicities and how we have wars because we don't understand each other. But the clones did. I mean, you know, you're just saying that. It, does it have to come to a point where humans would have to like, they would eliminate all types of like. This is the only way that you'd ever like get to a society without war is if you like what's it, uh, brave new world. If you went to that sort of conditioning, because even if you cloned people, like the clones, unless they were all brought up exactly the same, which is conditioning, they would still have different ideas. Like they're still humans, so there's still a want to gain power. Well, now if they had, if they were really clones, they would think similarly. They as would well. think similarly, except. Like is the argument nature versus nurture here? Like yes, you're like your basics are set up by your genetics, but after that, it's your experiences in life that shape who you are. Remember what we got from the article that I brought in from the American Political Science like, Review with regards to genetics. That means one's tendency to think as yeah, a Democrat or, or as a Republican. Like the level of well, well, yeah, just on a different level, you're talking about twins. You're talking about identical twins here. I mean, yes. obviously, those people are clones of each other. They yes. are. They were the same egg that split. They're exactly. absolutely identical. Exactly. Good. Point. Fundamentally, they're different people. And so, yes, they do have some of the same tendencies. And there's, you know, there's the fact that some people believe that clones or that twins can finish each other's sentences and all that stuff. But I mean, fundamentally, they're different people based on their environment and their experiences. So, if you had a race of clones. It would get rid of. I guess if you think about it, it would get rid of some of the differences. Not all, but some of Not the differences. All. Just like brothers no. and sisters. I, yeah, I, I think what I think what we want to really focus here is that Holden is probably saying that at the underlying cause of some of our conflict, our combative nature, is at least the perceived differences between us. And I don't think he's positing cloning as a solution for this but he's really accenting the differentness of it if you think about all of the evolution of human life it's really been about how people how people should get along despite differences how people should get along without resorting to violence how people should get along both with regard to differences in gender differences in race differences in ethnicity differences in religion without having to go to combat, without having to fight. And in an extreme case, Joe Holdeman is saying, you know, it's those differences that are driving us. Now, on the other hand, Isaac Asimov has actually raised this same exact issue in a way that I think, Jason, you would be very um, uh, intrigued by. Now, listen to this. We read the first three Foundation novels. They actually go on as some more. And... He later had he had two major series. One was the robot novels, and the other was the Foundation series. He later merged them in the ends of his life, where the robots were actually involved with the Foundation. And one of the things that happened in one of the last of the merged novels was there was a a robot that was. trying to help humanity proceed in its own evolution. And there was one planet of humans that were highly telepathic and had and thought in terms of one mind, very much like the clone situation. They thought together as one. And I think they called themselves Gaia. That was the name of that planet, if I recall correctly. They wanted to make Galaxia as well. Pardon me? They, were, like, they wanted to follow the Selden plan and end up with a galaxy where everybody was like them. Well, yes, everyone would have one mind. It's sort of almost like a Borg existence in the Star Trek situation in the sense that there would be one mind, one way of thinking, and the lack of conflict. And the robot actually said, but the conflict, the very thing that Jason is talking about, was actually useful. It, it forces you to it forces you to evolve, to ask questions, to, to confront issues that makes the personalities go through the juggernaut of, of the thinking process and produces you know, evolutionary advances. And the robot says, but I can't make the decision for humanity. Humanity has to decide. So they got, he, got one, he, got, he got a human that had not been influenced by, by uh, you know, outside forces and said, you make the decision. Should we let the second foundation have their way and sort of let 
you know, let ev- humanity continue to evolve with all of these differences, plus all of the conflicts that are going to be inherent in all of those differences, wars and all those other types of things? Or we do, we, do, we, do we let the, the planetary body, the one mind of Gaia, spread throughout the galaxy and settle things, <laughs> make, make essentially intellectual clones of people in the sense of you know, coming to a, a more harmonious existence? The harmonious existence, the robot realized, might lead to the lack of growth brought about by the conflicts. But on the other hand, the conflicts weren't good either, and he couldn't make the decision, so he had another human make that decision. So the, the issue is not that, and I don't think, I don't think Holdman would, agree, would disagree here, the issue is not that we should have clones so that we all have one mind and thus eliminate conflicts. But the bringing out of the clones really accents what causes, what's some of the underlying causes, what we fight against uh, when, when we are combative. Well, if you think about it, I mean, that's one of the things in Star Trek is that the Borg always kept winning because they kept assimilating new races. And I mean, yeah, they were a hive mind, but at the same time they were in conflict. So, I mean, it kind of goes back to that a hive mind if everyone is that way, um, yeah, you're going to stagnate because you're going to have no conflict. Also, the Borg didn't evolve. They assimilated and brought new technology and new ideas into them through assimilation, but they mm. didn't come up with new ideas for themselves. That's a very good point. Yeah, and when you introduce individuality into their collective mind, like in the case of Hugo from the next generation, like the yeah. node there utterly collapsed. Oh, you're talking about the Borg called Hugh. Yes. In the next generation, who who was who was he was uh, different from the collective. He was different from the collective, yeah. And so, like, he developed individuality. He was reassimilated. Yes. But because for some reason, his individuality moved into like his node of the board, and like they couldn't deal with it. So or collapsed. or yeah. when they assimilated um, Picard, and he was Locutus of Borg. Like when you watch which movie is it that the board take over the Enterprise? I can never... One of those. One of those. And anyway, it turns out that, she, that, that the queen hive mind wanted a consort who was independent enough on her level to, 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 be, a, to be a mental equal, to be, a, to be an equal to her. She wanted a consort, and Data was that consort because Data was so individual. Data, and then Picard was like, boy, what you really wanted was me. Take me. And it was just... It was like, yeah, individuality is sort of there too. I think the book is kind of like a warning to us now that like we need to continue our individuality even though society nowadays is kind of forcing us discouraging that and kind mm-hmm. of like punishing people who are thinking outside the box how we've been talking and yeah. that if we continue to do that then we might end up like a world of clones in the end and we don't want that we want everybody to be unique and like have their differences and stuff like that. it's certainly the the big tension in society. Do you force everybody to have a similar mind or do you acknowledge that the jar differences live with it? If you think about it, if you look at all of the different conflicts that we're going through today, the abortion issue, for example, the, the two sides are, you know, think like me or else, and they're both saying the same thing, think like me or else. And the level of the emotional conflicts are, are huge. Uh, if you think about the immigration issue that's coming that's, that's coming in, it's one of, they're different from us, the immigrants that are coming in. They're not just illegal, but they're different from us. They don't speak the same language. They use our resources, our taxpayer resources, so on like that. Yet, the reality is it's a, such a complicated issue. If we don't, if we don't act, you know, the, the money that they make, in large part, illegal aliens uh, often send a huge proportion of it back to their home countries. And should that stop, you'd probably have civil unrest, possibly revolutions, and zillions more illegal aliens coming across the border. So in fact, we're actually helping. Probably the one thing that we've never discussed in our nation in a really competent way, in my opinion, with regard to the flow of illegal aliens into the United States is not to defend our borders by putting up a fence, but to defend our borders by helping the development, the governmental and the social development of the countries that are nearby us. 
Well, Bush, Bush started that right at the beginning of his term, and then but we had 9-11. You're, you're talking about a real huge change. For example, nothing will really fundamentally stop the flow of illegal aliens coming from Mexico until Mexico is a solid economic power. You'd have to reform the police force. The police force in Mexico needs tr tremendous attention. Well, the exchange rate is so imbalanced between dollars to pesos. It's not just fiddled stuff like that. It's a huge Marshall plan for rebuilding. Oh, I know, all of well, I know. But part of the reason, part of the reason, my dad used to be a general contractor. Part of the reason that you had people coming across the border illegally was because they could work. Uh, these guys got paid like twelve or fourteen dollars an hour for putting a masonry block, and they could work for five, six years, send all their money back to Mexico, live in an apartment with twelve other guys, and when they went back to Mexico, they lived like kings. I mean, one of, one of the guys that used to work for my dad left after six years. He sent all his money back to Mexico, opened up his own factory, and makes, like, leather goods now. Yeah, but you're, I think, to be quite honest, Jason, I, I think you're misrepresenting this situation a little bit. There is that element, that coming to the United States, earning money, sending it back to Mexico, and then living like a king. That maybe affects a few people. But the huge <coughs> majority, they've really investigated this quite a bit, the huge majority send money back to Mexico just to keep family members alive just to keep them out of the absolute most dire of straits. And so you can you can find one or two that's living like a tomato king, you know, earning money lots here and living well off there. But the reality is the situation is absolutely desperate across the border. And you know, and that money goes to keep people basically just barely afloat. Well, and also a big problem in Mexico City is the people who do have money that run the risk if they have children or even themselves getting kidnapped and held for ransom. Yeah, that you're now pointing to the issue that the entire police force and the social structure would have to be reformed. Uh, we have five minutes left. Let me just let me just emphasize um, one additional point with regard to the with regard to the. Well, actually, before let's not let's let's not stay on Mexico too much longer because I really want to get back to one more thing in the Forever War that's related. Let's turn to page one twelve. And this is in the middle section. Let me see what chapter it is. In the, it's in chapter 5 in the middle section. Again, the chapters are renumbered as you get in from section to section. So, chapter uh, page 112. I took a long pull at my drink. Identical to hers except for the citric acid. You're getting pretty hard boiled. Maybe, no, just realistic. I have a feeling we're headed for a lot more death and sorrow. Not me. As soon as I get to Stargate, I'm a civilian. Don't be so sure, the old familiar argument. Those clowns who signed this up for two years can just as easily make it four or or six or twenty or the duration, but they won't. It wouldn't it would be mutiny. I don't know. If they could condition us to kill on cue, they can condition us to do almost anything, like re enlist. That was a chiller. Later on we tried to make love, but both of us had too much to think about. This is uh, Mandela talking with Mary J about the possibility that they might get oh who is he talking Estelle. about Estelle oh Estelle okay I'm sorry yeah talking about the possi yeah that's right in Estelle's cabin uh, talking about the the idea that they may not you know be able to get out of the military what does or they may not get what they thought they were going to get when they get into the military what does that say with regard to something that's actually going on now in the Iraq war People are being sent over for their second and third tours now. Who? Like the, even the reserves are being The sent. reserves. Now, when you join the reserves, what are you told you're going to be doing? Staying home. Staying home and doing things like hurricanes. Mm -hmm. One weekend a month, two weeks One in the week summer. One weekend a month and so on like that. I mean, that's the promises that's going on. And now you're active duty, slugging it out like, you know, you're in the regular army, mm -hmm. the regular Marines. And, and just like you said... Uh, Rachel, more than one tour, going back and back and back. So I think what Joe Haldeman is saying here is that there's an aspect of military life that is, you, know, you don't always get what you're signing up for. Now remember when they did re-enlist, when Mary J. and Mandela did finally re-enlist after they said they're not, they don't like Earth anymore, it was better, we, we were given the promise that we could have our own positions, uh, instructors, on the moon, they signed it, sealed it. They're not going to go far away. Uh, what happened? 
they were instructors on the moon for about a whole minute before they got the orders. <laughs> that, that's right. They were, and they got the, you know, an hour maybe, or a minute just a few minutes, and then they got, as soon as they signed the thing, they got reassigned, and they were off in different compact units. So that's an, act of, that's an aspect of military life that is, in fact, quite common. And it really raises another issue. This is a military not of a dictatorship, but this is a military of a democracy. So it really, it really raises the question of when anyone, whether you're in a democracy or a dictatorship, when you sign over the ability for somebody else to make decisions for you, when people have power, they use power. And I think it's one aspect, not just of military life, but of all life. When you trust anyone, you're giving up the fate, your own fate into anything. And one of the one things we ask about democracy, in fact, is democracy is not based on the idea of trust. You know the old thing about the Florida election in 2000? Trust me. They counted the ballots. Democracy was never built on trust. Democracy is established form of government based on the idea of, I don't trust you. <laughs> That's why democracy exists. If we trusted people, we'd still have Napoleon. We'd have Hitler, we'd have Genghis Khan. Democracy is built on the idea of distrust. I don't trust you, so I want the ballots to be fair and free, and I want audits, I want absolute accountability, I want to make sure there's a paper trail. I don't mind being ruled in a democracy by a government that, uh, that's elected, but I want to make sure that that's a fair government that's been elected, and I don't trust you, which is exactly why this verification issue is, is there. And I think that's one interesting issue that uh, Haldeman raises. By the way, we start on Thursday, and if you could get just uh, 150 pages, 200 pages into it, Philip K. Dix, great novel. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Is that a novel or a collection of short stories? Well, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Okay. Might be a surprise. All right, we'll find out. So you'll get we get as far as you can into it, and uh, uh, by the way, the pardon me. Papers due. Yes, and the papers are due, and the papers are due from Ender's Game, Ender's Game on Thursday. Okay, great.